Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It was a beautiful morning. Isn't it funny? Everyone says that, no matter where they were. Somehow, sea to shining sea, anchorage to Bangor, it was gorgeous. Surely September 11th, 2001 wasn't a cool, crisp fall day everywhere in the U.S., but it seems like everyone remembers it that way, regardless. In New York City, though, it was the kind of morning that made the absurd rents, the overcrowding, just the mind-numbing difficulty of living in the exhausting cultural capital of the world worth the myriad inconveniences. Such a morning in such a city is one of the most wonderful things the modern world has to offer. And then... A plane smashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. But as the shock set in, in those few minutes, calmer voices were already saying, this has happened before. Remember back in the 40s, that bomber that accidentally crashed into the Empire State? People died. It was a tragedy. But the city pulled together and got through it. This is awful. But it's something we faced, and something we'll persevere through. And then... No, this wasn't something we had seen. New York. America was facing a new kind of threat. A new evil had unleashed itself on the city that, in many ways, is the symbol of our nation to the world, and we weren't ready. Then, less than an hour later, before the city had even begun to take in the magnitude of this attack, the worst happened. And then it happened again. After that, it was a blur. The smoke and frenzy, bravery, heartache, tears. Those flyers that, just within hours, plaintively begged, have you seen this man, this woman, last spotted in the towers? News from Washington, from Pennsylvania, other planes, other victims, other heroes, other reasons to fear. What was coming next? When would the attack end? Who did this to us? I remember it all. So clearly, it had been so long, so many years of planning, so many individual pieces that had to execute flawlessly, rerouting the planes, sending up the drones, crashing them into the precise places where we had planted the explosives. Or did we even use those drones? Maybe we ended up going with a plan where we projected holograms over the missiles to make everyone think they were planes. There was so much back and forth on that one. Cheney was all like, use the drones. And Wolfowitz was all like, when are we going to get a chance to use this sweet hologram tech if not now? Man, I get wistful thinking about those good times. And occasionally when people hear that I was a part of it, they ask me, why? Why did we create this massive plan and then fake every single detail of it? Why did we make it so much more complicated than it would have been to just hijack those planes and fly them into the buildings, the way the cover story said it happened? 
To be honest, I'm not totally sure. I recall it had something to do with wanting to start a war with Iraq, and something about the neocons, and it definitely had something to do with Israel, and Aleister Crowley, and Satanism, and numerology, and astrology, and blood rituals, or something. But when you really get down to it, a wise man once said he climbed Mount Everest because it was there. And that's really why we took the hard road. Why we created an insane, ultra-complicated plot that could have failed at any of a million points, opting to involve thousands of people, including hundreds of supposed passengers on the supposed planes, every one of whom has kept perfect silence. Not one, ever, to this day, admitting his or her participation. We couldn't have known it would work. Hell, we had to expect it would fail completely, and that we would be exposed, tried, and probably executed for treason. But we did it because we could, and because eventually, even a real thrill, like murdering thousands of civilians under false pretenses, can get boring. You've gotta make it fun for yourself. Holy shit does that sound stupid, but that's what the 9-11 truther narratives boil down to when you really imagine them from the supposed plotter's standpoint. As you know all too well, plenty of your fellow Americans think some portion of that nonsensical ranting is true, that the real story of 9-11 is a cover-up. But while certainly not all of the facts of that day have fully come to light, the story that the 9-11 truthers tell themselves is a senseless, self-deluded fairy tale. So let's take on the biggest false flag conspiracy theory of all time. Newsflash, jet fuel can weaken steel, and Bush didn't do 9-11. And we're going to prove it on the Paranoid Strain. theme music. You should try it sometime. Welcome, once again, to The Paranoid Strain, the show where we provide the blueprint for talking your conspiracy-obsessed friends, peers, and family members off the ledge before they plunge into full-tilt bat shittery. I am, as always, your friendly, approachable, yet reassuringly authoritative host, Fearful Jesuit. If you've just joined us, welcome to a podcast that's as near as we can make it to being the exact opposite of The Alex Jones Show. Speaking of Jones, you might want to listen to the previous episode before you dive into this one, as it explains the concept of false flag events, both real and imagined, which feeds directly into the way that supposed 9-11 truthers explain their theories about what really happened on that day. And that episode features probably more on Mr. Jones than you ever cared to know. Seriously, at the risk of repeating ourselves... Fuck that guy. Or, of course, start all the way back at the beginning. We'll be here when you return. We also invite you to contact us and let us know what you think of the show. You can find us at Paranoid Strain on Twitter, theparanoidstrain at gmail.com for email, or our home on the web, theparanoidstrain.com. We've also got a group on Facebook. Just look up The Paranoid Strain and we'll get you signed up. If you've a mind, attach an audio clip to your email using the voice recording function on your smartphone. As we'd love to help our audience hear your pointed, topical questions in your own sexy control toe. Originally, we had intended for this show to be a standalone, but we ended up with so much material. 
ranging from the earnest and well-intentioned, which you'll find mostly in this episode, to the completely insane and utterly deranged, which we're mostly saving for next time. So we're going to have to dole this out to you in two installments. For this one, we start with the personal. We've had some topics that have hit close to home with us in the past, but in this case, your host was actually an eyewitness to the events. Back in 2001, I was living in Brooklyn and working in Manhattan. I was only there for five years, and on reflection, it still seems hard to believe my brief tenure happened to overlap with perhaps the most significant event in that city's long history. Because 9-11 is such a recent, contemporary memory, and because a bunch of my nearest and dearest experienced that day along with me, we're going to introduce this topic and try to recall the terrifying feeling of what that day was like through the lens of my and my friend's experience. Anywho, we hope you'll indulge us here briefly. Before I can talk about the conspiracy nonsense, I have to walk you through my experience of being a New Yorker that day. So many people have a much more important story to tell about 9-11, but still, for me and my friends, it remains one of the most life-changing events of our lives. So, hi, everybody. Um, I realize this probably basically sounds the same as a regular episode, but usually I have words in front of me, so it feels completely different. Here I'm just going to uh, speak off the cuff. Um, I didn't realize that uh, September 11th was September 11th um, until I got to my office. I was working in 30 Rockefeller Center. Way up high. Um, it's a very tall building. I was on the way to work. I had run that morning. Never forget the run because um, I used to run together and um, sometimes. And uh, we would make the turn at uh, the promenade, um, the Brooklyn promenade, see the skyline. One of us to the other had to say sort of semi-ironically, I love this town. And, um, I run that, that morning by myself, but I remember making that turn and sort of saying silently to myself, looking at the skyline, I love this town. It was the... Well, last time I ever saw the skyline intact. I'm going to take the train in to work, the subway, the F to the AC, and ended up riding the train with me, and it was somewhere between, somewhere after 8.30 in the morning, I guess, when we were pulling under the World Trade Center, when we had switched over to the Blue Line, and I remember a lady getting on the train, and she seemed, I don't know, out of sorts, almost like World she Trade World Trade Center. Taking too stop. Much cocaine not directly stuff. below the actual complex, but pretty close. And a woman got on the train and said, uh, a, "A plane has hit the Trade Center." And I thought she said the Train Center for some reason. And I said, "What?" She said, "Planes hit the World Trade Center." Oh shit! So we um, got off at the next stop, which was Canal. Um, I'm budding journalist at this point, it's nine months into my job, the Economist, and so I thought, "Well, this would be interesting. I can see if I can." get some man on the scene kind of cover for it is obviously a small plane accident um got out and went to uh, I went to work uh and I uh I had spent the night at a friend's house so I borrowed a shirt and I went to work and I uh, got on the first stop after I got on somebody got on and said the plane hit the south tower 
by the time I transferred to the A, like we knew that it was an airliner. Like I could have not gone to work. Uh, like the way that the options. subway worked from Brooklyn is I would take the train in and I would just go straight up into the building. So I had no reason to see that anything was going on. And, uh, you know, I was in my own world. After you've done a commute for a while, it's you're, you're not really paying uh, but attention. But he wanted to get out and look around and see what was going on with me. So we got out of the train north of Canal Street. One thing about my office that was really cool at the time was that we had a great view of the World Trade Center um, of the towers. Uh, there appeared to be smoke coming up from then, coming out. Uh, it was very together. clear what happened. And by the time I got out of the subway, both planes had hit. People just stood gawking in the streets. I saw the holes in the towers. It was honestly it was like there was a fire hose of paper. Like whatever current was happening was like burning hot, drawing air, and just sucking paper out of file cabinets and shooting it out of the hole. But then I decided I should go to work. Like, doesn't two airliners hit two towers? I should go to work. Straight up into the elevator like I've done a million times. I got up there, and a bunch of people from my floor rushed toward the elevator that I was getting off of. And honest to God, my first thought was, well, I'm not that late, because I was like 10 minutes late. Um, <laughs> so anyway... Uh, they quickly filled me in because what had just happened was that the second plane had hit the second tower. And I uh, my bag and I called my mom, who was gardening. And I said, Hey, just want you to know I'm okay. And she said, Why would you not be okay? And I said, There's like a thing, you should turn on the TV, but I'm okay. So people were like, Well, we need to, you know, start getting down the elevators and some others of us, certainly me, because I, I get some claustrophobia issues. We're like, eh, yeah, well, no, we're probably not going to take the elevator down because, you know, it's a pretty quick calculation if you work in a landmark building in New York and you don't know how many planes there are or what's happening or anything. You just know that planes are hitting big, tall buildings in New York and you work in one of the tallest and most notable. But there was a car in Zuccotti Park and it's had its windows rolled down and it was playing the news and I walked up to the car where people were listening to figure out uh, what had happened and we walked towards my office we were I don't recall going in I don't think we ever made it into the office that um, we were right by his office so we went inside and turned on TV and quickly became apparent two planes, two attacks uh, that terrorism. So we were pretty stunned by that. Obviously, I emailed my mom because I couldn't. Nobody's phone was working. Um, so I emailed my mom to let her know I was okay. And then, and then, um, uh, and then I heard like a like a hiss. It wasn't even that loud. Here's the thing: it was actually not that loud. Around again, and I do remember that we were standing on Sixth Avenue. We stood there on Canal Street, Sixth Ave looking down at the buildings when the first one collapsed. Uh, out front of my office, and the first tower began to collapse. And the people yeah, that were looking... Like a, just I, I had a clear shot to the South Tower, but I was through. I was on the other side of the park. There's, like, the tower, and then the plaza, and then the park, and I was on the other side. I was on the far side of the park. But I was there. And I fucking heard it go down. 
I heard every story collapse. And it was like the whole thing just disappeared into a hole in the ground. And it was not loud. It just was very deliberate. It's like the whole thing just let go. And when I heard every step I staring of it at it. Go. And I remember being surprised at how quiet it was. Um, it just looked like if you had picked up sand or uh, confetti and sprinkled it out of your hands, um, glitter almost. It just looked like from the top going down, there was glitter moving down, and then it was gone. Um, but I don't remember hearing anything. And at this point, uh, people were starting to freak out, rightfully so. So were and I. And actually thought about it for a while. And, uh, yeah, you find out what everybody's going to say when something like that happens. It is, in fact, oh, my God, it's not holy shit or Jesus Christ or anything like that. Everybody said, oh, my God, at the same moment. I, I, like, saw people running past me, and I realized that I'm not a ninja because everybody else reacted quicker than I did. They thought, like, we should get as far away from that collapsing 101-story building as we can. Uh, Godzilla films, where there's always one guy, and he's, like, pointing, and he's yelling, and he, like, that's me. And the cloud, like, I've seen videos of the cloud, and it's always, like, where the cloud comes up Broadway, and it's... But it was so thick. The cloud, when it came for me, was... It wasn't dissipating, it was just fucking black and I just kept thinking like this is how everybody dies and I didn't I didn't die the person in front of me disappeared and then I followed him and I was in a building and and then like the so there was this separation between all the people who were clean and all the people who had dust all over them. So I had, like, dust all over me. And all the clean people were scared of me. And she came up to me, and she clearly, like, knew what she was doing because she kept on trying to get me to tell her, her tell me her name. And she was like, I'm Julie. Do you know what happened? I kept thinking, in, I, like, I must have been in shock. It was, like, clear that, like... She must have perceived me as being in shock and she was using her crisis training. But what I was thinking on the inside was like, Julie, like, who fucking cares? Do you know what just happened? Like, a fucking building just, like, why are we having this conversation, Julie? We like, started walking down. I was on the 57th floor. And we started walking down. And I remember it being a very uh, relatively calm process because we weren't sure whether we were in mortal danger or not. Turns out we weren't. We started sort of counting out the other buildings that would probably get hit before us. So we had like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, and then we figured we were probably the one after that. So um, we didn't know whether we <laughs> we were joking or not. So anyway, um, get down to the first floor. I started walking south along Fifth Avenue. I don't know, sometime during that walk, it does get hazy. But I realized that I could only see one of the towers. I get down to about, to well, I got exactly to Herald Square at 5th Avenue and 34th Street. And I saw the second, which is the North Tower, crumble. Um, 
I've never experienced anything like that. Someone was showing you that the solid background of the world was just like a, a painted backdrop in a movie or a play, and that you could roll it up, or in this case, roll it down. And it, some point we rounded a corner and looked back, and the other tower was gone. We didn't hear it or know that it had fallen. I thought maybe I just couldn't get a proper uh, view. And when I cleared the block and looked up, the other tower was already gone. So in the time it took me to walk a horizontal block, the second tower had I walked dropped. back out, and I know now that there were bodies. And I did not see them. I have no memory. I have zero memory of any bodies. Dust. I tried to walk north, and then I started to hear the south tower fell, and I knew what the noise was because the noise goes like. You mean the north? The north tower, yeah, right. Just heard it go, and, and so I frantically looked around, and that's when I actually freaked the fuck out. And uh, there was a guy who was standing next to me, and he collapsed onto the ground and just started wailing in a way that I hope never to hear again. Passed the hospital when I tried to donate blood, but they were like a mile-long line, so everybody had that instinct. Uh, we got to the hospital, and that. the line was so long to donate blood that they were actually turning us away. Moment of a tragedy like that. So many people uh, had the same thought to try to queue up and do something like good. A- Dude with a like a reflective vest asking for volunteers at the NYU Beekman Hospital. And I thought, I can go do that. That's a thing that And I- so I ended up crossing at the Manhattan Bridge. Um, and I got across to Brooklyn and I literally kissed the ground when I got to Brooklyn. And I don't know why, it just it felt like Brooklyn was a place that people didn't attack. I don't know. Um, and as I was walking across I could see the smoke and some of the burning pieces of paper wafting over the river. And I made my way. Brooklyn. And that was it. We sat and were watching TV. And then came in covered in. covered in ash. You know, death ever went to war. I didn't, like, fucking volunteer for the Marines after that. But I'm still not okay. It was a pretty rough day. Even for us, the proverbial innocent bystanders, but unimaginably so for the fallen heroes and victims, as well as the mourning relatives and the valiant professionals who immediately started treating the wounded, searching for the living, and identifying the dead. Well, the sun came up on September 12th, and the next day, and the next. The hole eventually stopped smoking. Life sort of went back to normal, even in Manhattan. Time made the memory somewhat less raw. And in the months and years that followed, careful investigations by government agencies, journalists, and others began helping to piece together the story of what actually happened. At the risk of restating the obvious, what they learned was summarized in the 9-11 Commission report. At 8.46 on the morning of September 11th, 2001, 
an airliner traveling at hundreds of miles per hour and carrying some 10,000 gallons of jet fuel plowed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. At 9.03, a second airliner hit the South Tower. Fire and smoke billowed upward. Steel, glass, ash and bodies fell below. The Twin Towers, where up to 50,000 people worked each day, both collapsed less than 90 minutes later. At 9.37 the same morning, a third airliner slammed into the western face of the Pentagon. At 10.03, a fourth airliner crashed in a field in southern Pennsylvania. It had been aimed at the United States Capitol or the White House, and was forced down by heroic passengers armed with the knowledge that America was under attack. This immeasurable pain was inflicted by 19 young Arabs acting at the behest of Islamist extremists headquartered in distant Afghanistan. Some had been in the United States for more than a year, mixing with the rest of the population. Though four had training as pilots, most were not well educated. Most spoke English poorly, some hardly at all. In groups of four or five, carrying with them only small knives, box cutters, and cans of mace or pepper spray, they had hijacked the four planes and turned them into deadly guided missiles. Here's where we encounter the seeds of conspiracy theories to come. This clear, accurate description, in and of itself, sounds almost unbelievable. Even though we all know that it actually happened, it still seems incredible that a small group with no particular skills could wreak such havoc. And while knowing what happened was important, the nation also demanded to know why. That answer was, of course, more complicated. In his gripping narrative, The Looming Tower, which details the decades-long history of Al-Qaeda and the ideology that fueled Osama bin Laden, Lawrence Wright finds the origins of the attack in a philosophy based on the works of scholars like Saeed Qutb. His writing detailed a view of the world in which Islam was the only pure, holy thing that would be able to save humanity from the depredations of the modern world. Is particularly important among these thinkers because he openly embraced violence to reach the goal of installing governments that were sufficiently Islamic. As, of course, defined by Kup's personal, extremely fundamentalist view of Islam. Bin Laden, the scion of a Saudi construction dynasty, signed on to a vision of Kutb's philosophy early in life, and Wright documents his fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s, the founding of Al Qaeda and the series of flashy attacks that the group undertook in the years prior to 2001. Using the man's own words, it's more than clear that he was fully dedicated to attacking and destroying the U.S. and its influence around the world. His hatred of America partially rested on perceived insults like the ongoing presence of U.S. troops. Or, in his rather more colorful phrasing, filthy, infidel crusaders. In Saudi Arabia, which he viewed as one of the greatest tragedies to impact the Islamic world since the death of Muhammad in the 7th century. But he also saw the conflict as bigger than Al-Qaeda versus the United States. He saw it as the latest front in the thousand-plus-year struggle of Islam versus the global invaders, with the U.S. serving merely as the most recent figurehead. This view cast bin Laden himself in a highly flattering position, in the eyes of his group and with sympathizers around the world. As Wright notes, by declaring war on the United States from a cave in Afghanistan, he assumed the role of an uncorrupted, indomitable primitive standing against the awesome power of a secular, scientific, technological Goliath. He was fighting modernity itself. Okay, so there's no doubt he hated the shit out of us, but can we really know that he and Al-Qaeda planned something on the scale of 9-11? Yeah, of course we can. In fact, Wright's book notes that the 9-11 plot was actually the end result of a years-long evolution. 
For example, back in 1994, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM, who is considered the architect of 9/11, and is also the hairy guy in the undershirt whose mugshot is in the "Holy shit, what's up with that guy?" Hall of Fame, right between Gary Busey and Nick Nolte. Yeah. So seven years before the attacks, KSM and his nephew came up with the idea of simultaneously bombing 12 American jumbo jets over the Pacific. They even tested the bombs they would use, murdering an innocent Japanese tourist and nearly downing a plane in the process. Two years later was the first time KSM suggested training pilots to crash planes into buildings. This early version proposed using ten planes simultaneously to hit targets like CIA headquarters and nuclear plants. Plus, the evidence shows that, again per Wright, Bin Laden believed that the best way to goad the United States into a full-on war with the Muslim world, which again is something he thought of as a good thing, was relentless attacks on symbolic targets like the Pentagon, White House, and Capitol building, with KSM recommending the Trade Center, which his nephew had previously failed to topple with the bombing of 1993. Once the U.S. was goaded into attacking Afghanistan, then the holy warriors would descend on the mighty American military machine. Draining it of blood and treasure until the country fell apart. What do you mean fell apart? I mean he thought that the country would literally dissolve with each of the fifty states forming its own squabbling nation, and the might of the U.S. would be vanquished forever. Hmm. Someone has a very high opinion of himself. Well, while domestic politics might accomplish that big breakup someday, nine eleven sure didn't. Agreed. But he did succeed in goading the U.S. into an invasion of Afghanistan, and it shows that he did really. Really mean it when he said he was at war with the U.S. when his group launched a variety of deadly attacks throughout the 90s, and when he belatedly took credit for 9/11 on camera. Moreover, terrorist groups and sympathizers throughout the world have praised Bin Laden for the attacks. As mentioned before, the 9/11 Commission combed over an astonishing variety of sources and records before coming to its conclusions, and Wright's thoroughly researched account backs up its version of the events leading up to the attack. Okay. So we've gotten motive, opportunity, and evidence out of the proverbial wazoo. So what is the problem? Oh, not a thing. Oh, except that most Americans don't believe it, or at least they doubt some aspect of it. This is actually an important point for us to make here. Plenty of polls have demonstrated that a majority of Americans doubt the official 9/11 story. But when you look more closely, those respondents are saying something along the lines of, "I think the government hasn't told us everything about 9/11." Okay, this is going to hurt a little bit. <clears throat> But if that's the line for conspiracy thinking on 9/11, then your favorite anti-conspiracy podcast agrees with the conspiracy theorists. We apologize for that hackneyed sound effect, and we should probably clarify that this is a very limited surrender. It's just that we see no reason to assume that the government has actually shared every single piece of relevant information about the attack, its planning, and its aftermath. And the only reason we accept this is because it's fucking obvious. The government keeps secrets far longer in some cases than would make any sense. As we record this, they're releasing another trove of documents related to the JFK assassination, 55 years after the fact. Hell, in 2011, they released presumably the final set of classified documents from World War One, more than 90 years after the last gun fell silent. So it seems like a gimme to say the government hasn't released everything related to 9/11. Question is, do we have good reason to believe that the unreleased material would completely contradict the mountains of physical and documentary evidence that went into developing the consensus view of this event? And the answer is no, not really. After all, those aforementioned JFK docs, which we'll cover much more in a show a few months from now, have revealed important points that flesh out the story of that event, 
and certainly embarrassed some key players, but nothing has completely overturned or contradicted the facts that led to the historical narrative. There's no reason to think the eventual release of 9-11 documents, presumably in the 2050s, will be any different. So, with that caveat, let's turn to the more germane polling result, which consistently shows that around 15% of the U.S. population doesn't believe that Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attack, and that instead the U.S. government was partially or completely responsible. Now, we believe those folks are wrong, because of reason and evidence. But while we've already told you that the events of 9-11 hit close to home for us, now's the time to admit that 9-11 conspiracy thinking hits pretty close to home as well. Longtime listeners will recall that our credits always include our gratitude to one Willem UFO, who does all the pretty pictures. He's also one of my oldest and closest friends, and one of the most fascinating, intelligent, and all-around great dudes it's ever been my pleasure to meet. But... And you probably see where this is going. He's not on board with the standard explanation for 9-11. It's okay, we're gonna get through this. I kind of alluded to this in the last episode, but in the summer of 2017, I embarked on what I termed the Great Paranoid Strain Road Trip, traveling from west to east, stopping at every location where I could talk to sensible... Okay... Semi-sensible. People about conspiracy theories. You'll be hearing plenty from this little jaunt over the coming months, but the point for now is that my companion throughout most of this trip was none other than Mr. Willem UFO himself. And to while away those long hours on the road, he was kind enough to talk to me about disagreements he has with me, and the premise of this little show, as well as his story of experiencing 9-11 on TV, and how that led him to doubt some of the elements of the standard 9-11 narrative. Okay. So, you have expressed to me that you have questions about at least the official government story behind 9-11. Could you simply lay those out for me, please? Oh, man, I haven't talked about this in so long. I just said it back when I was really hot and heavy on the whole idea of there being a conspiracy behind 9-11. Um, that, like, there, there, was just, there was just a lot of this, like, information coming from sources where you were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. The problem I have with people who don't believe in any conspiracies, yeah, is the same problem you have with people that believe all conspiracies. There has to be well, again, somewhere. Yeah, like one of these things we're talking Water, about. Watergate was a conspiracy. But I don't think anybody argues that. There are a lot of people who put their foot down and go, Watergate was not a conspiracy. Because the whole point for me with conspiracies is, let me see your evidence. Like, I, the only thing that I'm ever concerned with is, let me see the evidence. And as soon as I see definitive evidence that a group of experts... Would, that's the thing. Conspiracies can't have definitive evidence. Why not? Because they're theories. Here's one. All right. So, the day of 9-11. Yes. I woke up. A uh, good friend of ours, Richard, called me. And said, turn on your TV. And I said, which channel? He said, doesn't matter. And that's what I woke up to. Okay. And I turned it on to Sports Center. ESPN, but I, yeah. I, I used to go to sleep watching sports. Sure. And sure enough, I turn on ESPN, and there's a there's this huge building. Well, then I turned it to CNN, which was a channel down, and it was like world uh, plane hits World Trade Center. Uh, well, that's fucked up. Yeah. But my immediate thought was, how has that not happened before? Right. So I'm watching. Yeah. And the other the other plane hits. Right. And that was when I was like, this, this is an attack. Like, this is some kind of planned attack. They started showing this really weird angle that was obviously not New York. It was in Washington. 
can see smoke coming off from the right side of the screen. Uh-huh. And it's like apparently there's been an attack uh, on the Pentagon in Washington. And this was the first footage coming in because it wasn't like now where you can just go Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like yeah. Google footage of uh, Washington. Twitter, and, like, yeah. A thousand things show Twitter up. Twitter video, yeah. And at some point during the day, and again, it's been a while, so I don't remember what time it was. But at some point during the day, they're, they're talking about the other plane, the one in Pennsylvania, that had disappeared yeah, off yeah, radar, yeah. right? Um, I'm, I'm watching that. And they cut to a network affiliate. And there's a guy, a local newscaster, standing by a lake. And he mentioned what the lake was, and I don't, I, I don't remember. You were watching CNN. I was watching CNN. I only okay. watched CNN. Kind of. I might have flipped over to a couple of other things. Aside from your initial ESPN. With, yeah, yeah. I stuck with CNN for the day. He had, like, an overcoat. He's got his, you know, fucking, like, affiliate and microphone, you know, in front of him. And behind him, very clearly, in the lake... There's a tail section of a plane and a sheriff's pontoon boat. And they're throwing chains. They're throwing big chains over the back of this tail section. And I mean like the entire, like the like the fin at the back of the plane, that whole fucking thing and the, and the tip of the tail were sticking out of the water. Okay? And he's like, we're here at Lake So-and-so. We're debris from flight and they fucking cut him off mid-sentence. They never showed that footage. They never. I can't find that footage. Okay. But I have talked to enough people that saw the same shit I saw that it happened. I will look at it. I didn't. I didn't. It's not. It's not horseshit. Okay. I didn't make it up. It was real. They reported that flight was for whatever the, the flight before the, the plane had gone down in a field in Pennsylvania, and the big quote from that was there was no debris larger than a phone book. You can look that up. That, that that specific quote was said by a number of news outlets because I would hear it later on other news reports throughout the week. Okay, first of all, in the fucking history of crashes of planes that size, there's never been a crash where the only shit left was smaller than a but everything that was left was smaller than a phone book. There are wings. There's the fuselage. There's the tail section. There's the fucking nose cone. They also cut to the field and show you the debris field, right? Yeah. Smoldering metal. Yeah. Okay? What did we not see? We did not see any kind of crater. There was nothing where, like, there was no, there was no, um, uh, like, uh, gully or ditch left where the plane pieces would have hit and dug into the soil. And in most of the places, the fucking grass wasn't even burned. Like the field was green. I mean, there was there was no damage to the surroundings. It was like they went out there with a truck and drove around scraping stuff off the back. Do you think that's what they did? No, I don't know. But I'm saying that that's not where the fucking crash was. Because the lake... I remember during the guy's thing that he was like, we're some 40 miles from the reported crash site of... And that's when they cut him off. Okay, so you go to the Pentagon, and they're like, one of the planes smashes the side of the Pentagon. I watched fucking CNN for a week, and they never, ever showed any plane 
or plane debris being pulled out of the Pentagon. They showed the fucking hole that was in the Pentagon, but they never showed any debris. They didn't show a tail section, wings, anything. Now, if a full-size passenger airliner that with its landing gear down is seven stories tall from the tail section, from the ground of the tail section, right? Is that about right? I, I have no idea. Well, I mean, okay. So stories, the reports that came out of it, when, when I, and again, I have, I have not read up on this in a lot, like, you know, a decade or more. The reports that were coming out was the type of plane that hit the Pentagon was literally two floors taller taller than the five-floor Pentagon. Pentagon's okay. five floors tall, okay. right? So the plane that hit it was two floors higher than that at its highest point, which is the rear tail section. Okay? Okay. If the plane hit the building and did not go into the building, then it would be hanging out of the building. Or pieces of it would be. If the plane did hit the Pentagon and hit it so hard that the fucking entirety of the plane went into the building, how was the hole in the side of the Pentagon only four floors tall? And while I'm watching CNN, the fifth floor collapsed into the hole while we were watching live television. Okay. That's not possible. Explain to me how over the course of the next week of, of coverage, of 24-hour coverage, they never showed a plane being dragged out. They never showed the large pieces of debris being removed from the Pentagon. I think they were both missiles. I think they shot the plane out of the sky. And I think the, the thing that hit the Pentagon was an errant missile. I really do. So you don't necessarily think it was a conspiracy where the government was plotting 9-11. You just think their response no, no, I, so dramatically. No, I think it was both. Oh. I think that there were... And I'm not saying like that Bush knew what was going on. But I do think that there were people within the government that... Maybe not put this into motion, but didn't necessarily stop it. The thing that I will guarantee you is, I am going to run down the things you just talked about to the best of my ability and try and give you a really solid answer one way or the other, with as much like research and evidence as I can provide. Yep, I know. I think it'll be fun. Thanks very much to Willem for giving us a specific target against which to judge our efforts for this episode. We'll check back in with him later to see what he thinks of the evidence we've gathered to respond to his concerns. Also, I hope it's clear from that last bit that we're not talking about a pie-eyed lunatic. Well, on, on this one, maybe. No, don't bring it up. They're gonna find out eventually. Shit. Okay, he also doesn't think we went to the moon. Motherfuckers! Fearful Jesuit fraternizes with the enemy. Bet you didn't see that twist coming. Ah, shit! Calm down. We're gonna deal with that one later. But yeah, Jesus. To get back to the topic at hand, then, Willem's hardly the only person to have doubts about 9-11. And certainly assholes like Kevin Barrett and Alex Jones, whom we met in the previous episode, and David Ray Griffin, who will be our newest, favoritest asshole this time around, have exploited these doubts with ever-grander and crazier theories over the years. Which brings us to the crux of our problem with this episode. Back in number five, we dedicated about 90 minutes to thoroughly explaining all of the bullshit that sovereign citizens believe. And we'd love to do the same thing here. But 9-11 conspiracies are such a huge, mutable, diverse phenomenon that there's no set group of assertions to pin down. Aside from a big, nah -uh, aimed at the evidence-based explanation. And to make things worse, the various factions of opposing September 11th conspiracists fight among themselves like... Well, like a group of fractious delusionals, I suppose. But my friend isn't delusional. 
He's not one who necessarily jumps on board every the government was behind it, man, accusation that comes his way. So we're going to give the claims he outlined, as well as a number of other frequently cited questions that reasonable people might ask, their due. Starting now. I Thankfully, we're not the first ones to try to address the claims of truthers. While many have gone before us, the giants on whose shoulders we plan to stand for this segment are the intrepid journalists, engineers, and other researchers who contributed to the phenomenal debunking 9-11 myths. A book-length treatment of what started as a full issue of Popular Mechanics dedicated to rigorous scientific dismissal of truther claims. In our humble opinion, this stands as one of the greatest ever undertakings in the war against ignorance and sophistry. It belongs on a shelf with Carl Sagan's The Demon-Haunted World. That's the biggest recommendation the show can bestow, folks. Pick up a copy. As previously noted, we're going to focus in on just a handful of the most widespread claims or questions about the way things went down. And in addition to debunking 9-11 myths, we'll rely on the official 9-11 Commission report, some other reputable sources, and of course, a few questions from our own beloved conspiracist, Willem UFO. First, let's examine a conspiracy accusation that emerged after the attacks, but refers to something that actually happened immediately prior. Trading on stock exchanges before the attacks. The idea here is that someone had advance notice of the airlines that would be involved in the 9-11 attacks, and then used that information to place put, or short, options on these companies' stocks. Not to delve deeply into the machinations of Wall Street, but in essence, short options entitle the bearer to bet that the price of a position will fall over the period of the option. So you buy them if you think a company's about to take a financial hit. You buy a long or call option if you think the opposite. Usually a company's long and short options will have a fairly stable ratio, though that will change dramatically in the wake of great or terrible news. In the case we're dealing with here, United and American Airlines, the two companies whose planes were involved in the attacks, experienced genuinely huge fluctuations in their option ratios from like 25 times to 100 times normal in the weeks leading up to the tragedy. One were to put a single put option contract on American Airlines at $30 a share and the stock fell to $18, one could purchase 100 shares at $18 and immediately sell them for 30 netting a profit of $12 a share. The levels of options purchased the week of 9-11 were more than six times higher than normal. A former member of the German parliament, then responsible for oversight of the German secret service, estimated that profits by insider traders were $15 billion. Of course, this doesn't serve as any sort of definitive evidence of a plot, but it would seem to offer some interesting corroborating evidence for those who believe the other claims. Except, of course, the whole thing falls apart upon greater scrutiny. Yeah. Turns out the much-maligned 9-11 Commission dealt with this claim specifically, determining that, in fact, some out-of-the-ordinary trading was indeed happening with regard to those airlines' stocks. But the explanations were clear, sensible, and no more sinister than any other Wall Street trade. A single U.S.-based institutional investor with no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda purchased 95% of the United Puts on September 6 as part of a trading strategy that also included buying 115,000 shares of American on September 10. Similarly, much of the seemingly suspicious trading in American on September 10 was traced to a specific U.S.-based options trading newsletter. Facts to its subscribers on Sunday September 9th, which recommended these traits. Yep. 
The whole thing was investigated by both the FBI and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and it all added up to bupkis. We're pretty sure no one ever became a conspiracy theorist specifically because of the trading story. But it is an example of a question that conspiracy theorists have frequently brought up in the past and left hanging in the air like an accusation, when actual research would have led them to a clear, non-sinister explanation. Okay, next up. The cell phone calls from the passengers and flight attendants to officials and loved ones on the ground. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. Um, I don't know what to say. There's three guys. They've had that plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around. And I've heard that there's planes that have been thrown into the World Trade Center. I hope Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. Okay. And the cockpit is not answering their phone. And there's somebody staffed in business class, and there's, we can't breathe in business class. Somebody's got mace or something. Can you describe the person that you said someone is what in business class? Um, I'm, I'm sitting in the back. Somebody's coming back from business. Hey, well, just Hold on. One you. Second. We're back. having a real problem on the plane. Um, I'm totally fine. Um, I just love you more than anything, just know that, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm okay for now, um, just a little problem, so I'll, uh, I, I just love you, please tell my family I love them too. Bye, honey. I'm sure all of those who lived through 9-11 remember the heart-rending stories of doomed folks aboard the planes doing their best to talk to authorities or family members. These painful, intimate contacts make the individual tragedies of all of these people so terribly real, and they will surely never be forgotten. Of course, to some conspiracy theorists, they're smoking gun evidence of a cover-up. In Loose Change, the shoddy, poorly researched film that serves as the urtext for 9-11 conspiracists on YouTube, Little Known Fact. Biologists classify YouTube as 9-11 conspiracists' native habitat. Anyway, in that movie, considerable shade is thrown in the direction of these calls. Today, cell phones can easily deliver data via in-flight Wi-Fi, as anyone with an irascible child and a Netflix subscription would be happy to tell you, between gulps of overpriced scotch in tiny bottles. And in fact, the only thing that's preventing those phones from making calls over that self-same Wi-Fi is the fact that the public absolutely fucking hates the idea. Of course, 2001 technology was a completely different beast, and the film's creators claim that, considering the limitations of said tech, those calls were impossible, and therefore didn't happen as indicated by the official story. The loose change assholes, as is typical for the monomaniacal conspiracy theorist mindset with which this show is all too familiar, seem unconcerned about the lives and memories they stomp over in trying to make their flimsy cases. So when faced with conclusive evidence that, for example, flight attendants Betty Ong and Madeline Sweeney, both from Flight 11, the first plane to hit the towers, each conducted more than 20-minute airphone calls with colleagues on the ground, they throw a series of baseless accusations at those calls' validity. What about the cell phone calls? For starters, the calls themselves are extremely peculiar. Most of them are only a couple sentences long before the callers end the conversation, only to call back later. Flight Attendant Betty Ong allegedly placed a call from Flight 11. According to the 9-11 Commission, although the conversation lasted 23 minutes, only four and a half minutes was recorded. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on Flight 11. Okay. 
Does Miss Ong sound like a woman on a hijacked plane who is seeing people murdered right in front of her? Why is no one in the background screaming? Flight attendant Madeline Sweeney allegedly talked to her ground manager, Michael Woodward, for 25 minutes. She describes four hijackers. The FBI says there were five. She says the hijackers were all in rows 9 and 10. The FAA says that they were all in row 8. Near the end, she allegedly screams, I see buildings in water. Madeline Sweeney was a flight attendant out of Boston for 12 years. I believe she would have said something like, I think we're going to hit Manhattan. A man claiming to be Mark Bingham called... Note here that their only actual objections are that these brave professionals seem too calm, that there are discrepancies about some details that they're striving to convey under incredibly stressful circumstances, and that one of them didn't specify the city in which she was about to be murdered. Then they turn their attention to the smaller number of cell phone calls made from Flight 93, the only plane whose passengers learned of the other attacks, which led to the heroic attempt to wrest control of that plane. Since they apparently see their job as reflexively denying anything in the official record, naturally the loose change guys have to deny this as well. Why? Because none of the cell phone calls could have taken place. Key Dudney of Physics911.net conducted some research of his own. In an experiment called Project Achilles, he took a series of cell phones onto a Cessna 172 and flew up to 8,000 feet. At 4,000 feet, he had a 0.4 success rate. At 8,000 feet, he had a 0.1 success rate. For 32,000 feet, cruising altitude for a commercial jetliner, Dudney calculated a 0.006 success rate, less than one in a hundredth of a chance. Our heroes at Popular Mechanics were all over this one. In spite of loose change and the broader 9-11 truther movement's protestations to the contrary, experts confirm that the cell phone calls that, you know, did happen on 9-11 could have actually happened on 9-11. It's amazing that professionals have to dedicate their time to refuting this kind of absurdity, isn't it? In the words of Paul Guckian, vice president of engineering at Qualcomm, I would say that at the altitude for commercial airliners, around 30,000 or 35,000 feet, some phones would still get a signal. Another expert, Rick Kemper, elaborated. It's not a very good connection, and it changes a lot, and you end up getting a lot of dropped calls because you're moving through cell sites so fast. And what do you know, the calls placed to loved ones were short and tended to drop after just a minute or so. Let's move on to perhaps the granddaddy of all 9-11 truther accusations, the one that you've seen on t-shirts, protest signs, and at least one really good rock song. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. No, I'm not going to sing it. The idea here is that jet fuel of the kind that poured out of the destroyed planes into the towers after impact burns at a lower temperature than is required to melt steel of the sort that the towers' frames were made of. Instead, conspiracists tend to claim that the towers were actually brought down by explosives that had already been surreptitiously secreted into the buildings by the dastardly plotters. To ensure, I don't know guys, it's not like this shit makes sense. Popular Mechanics explains the temperature issue more specifically. At the time of impact, the planes were each carrying around 10,000 gallons of jet fuel. Jet fuel burns at 1,100 to 1,200 degrees Celsius, significantly less than the 1,510 degrees Celsius typically required to melt steel. However... And you just knew there was a however, didn't you? Experts agree that for the towers to collapse, their steel frames didn't need to melt. They just had to lose some of their structural strength, and that required exposure to much less heat. So, the hotter the steel got, the less it was able to resist the titanic weight of the floors above. Or, as 
one blacksmith memorably pointed out on YouTube. I do not care. What I am upset about is the retarded metallurgical things that you guys are saying. I'm not arguing the facts. Jet fuel does in fact burn at 1500 degrees. Steel, we all start melting some carbon steels at 2300 degrees. But if you hold this up as a reason for conspiracy, you are an idiot. This is a piece of half-inch thick steel, A36, structural steel, designed for structures. This is a 250-pound anvil. I'm going to put this steel in the back of this anvil, and I'm going to lift this 250-pound anvil with this bar of steel. Do you see how the structural steel is supporting this anvil? Okay. There. Now, in my furnace, I have an identical piece of half-inch bar of steel, just like this, and it's going to be around 1,800 degrees, just 300 more than jet fuel, when it comes out. And I want you to see something very interesting. Go into the forge. It's very hot, but not melted. Obviously, it is not melted. I put this in the oven. Now watch this. I'm going to take my pinky finger. My pinky finger, half-inch solid steel. Check it out. It's a freaking noodle. Your argument is invalid. Get over it. There's a lot of complicated engineering stuff in the complete explanation. But to simplify, the jet fuel dispersed widely and burned itself out in about 10 minutes, but not before it ignited the shit out of everything around it which all proceeded to raise the temperatures of the steel beams, which had had their fireproofing material knocked off upon impact. The fires started by the fuel continued to burn and weaken the building structure, placing more and more pressure on the central columns, until finally, under slightly different circumstances in each tower's case, the columns in each building collapsed. Oh, and it's not like you have to take my or, for that matter, popular mechanics word for it. Turns out the government dropped $16 million on an investigation that meticulously analyzed the entire event and generated a massive report on it, which is freely available for you to read. For that matter, scientists at Purdue created an incredibly detailed computer model of the buildings, planes, fuel, columns, and environment, and then ran a simulation successfully replicating the entire impact, including initial damage, explosions, etc., with no intervention by the researchers. Based on these findings, there's no serious scientific question that the standard model of columns, beams, jet fuel, and other interactions would necessarily result in a collapse of the kind that, as we unfortunately know, actually happened. You can find this video on YouTube, but quick warning, the passion the narrator brings to his task is precisely inverse to the value of the information. The video illustrates the efforts of a team of visualization and civil engineering researchers towards producing a high-fidelity visualization of the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. A finite element analysis simulation of the impact between the Boeing 767 and the top 20 floors of the North Tower was computed using a state-of-the-art simulation code. Then, the simulation results were imported into a state-of-the-art animation system where the visualization was produced. In spite of the massive resources leveraged to deliver these definitive accounts, those same reports didn't actually cover the physics of the buildings once they began to collapse. So as you might expect, the conspiracists, undaunted by their recent comeuppance, turned instead toward doubting that the towers could have collapsed so quickly. Once again, an actual scientist, who could be bothered to take the time to do careful research, came to the rest, which Smithsonian Channel was kind enough to summarize for us. ...wide open for conspiracy theorists, who point to the unexpectedly rapid collapse amid reports of explosions. 
Nuclear chemist Dr. Frank Greening was also surprised that the towers collapsed so quickly. I watched this whole thing unfold like everybody did, and I say to myself, how could this happen? Greening felt that until the mechanics of the collapse were properly understood, the fanatical rumors would simply not go away. He decided to calculate whether the towers would collapse under their own weight without the need for explosives. First thing I felt needed to be cleared up was could the building collapse the way we saw it or did it actually need help uh, from explosives as some people were suggesting. I really threw myself into 9-11 research and I decided I wanted to apply science physics to studying this problem. I set up a computer program based on momentum transfer to look at each impact of each floor. Greening's momentum transfer program calculated the weight of the buildings above the impact floors. He discovered that if one floor failed, the weight of the higher floors would cause each floor below to give way exactly as seen. Frank's calculations would also need to prove that the floors below each impact point would disintegrate in a manner that looks similar to a controlled demolition. I ran the program. It showed that the, uh, the buildings would indeed come down. Even more interesting was the, the computer program predicted the collapse times. The North Tower falls in 13 seconds. But with a greater number of floors above the impact site of the South Tower, it takes only 11 seconds. Once the building started to collapse, there was no stopping it. It was a juggernaut. The mass of the upper block in the North Tower is equivalent to the mass of the Titanic. It's about 38,000 tons. With that nonsense dispatched, we can now turn our attention to Willem UFO, dear friend and person who's wrong about 9-11, and his questions about the Pentagon. The evidence-based story states that Flight 77, piloted by one of the terrorists, initially overflew its target before turning sharply and descending to just above the ground, slamming into the Pentagon at approximately 530 miles per hour, smashing holes through the E and D rings of the building, and punching a 20-foot hole in the C ring. For folks who have problems believing that Flight 77's impact made that particular hole in that oddly shaped building, the objections tend to cluster around a few issues. That the terrorist in charge of piloting that plane couldn't have made the maneuvers necessary to fly into the Pentagon. That the hole the plane made wasn't big enough. And finally, that no pieces of the plane seemed to be removed during the rescue and recovery operation. So to objection number one. This one arises from the fact that the terrorists overshot the Pentagon and had to make a sharp turn, somewhere between 270 and 330 degrees, in order to recover and hit the target. The question posed by conspiracists is, could the murderous piece of shit who had trained to fly and crash Flight 77, Hani Hanjur, have executed this high-speed maneuver? They point out that the flight instructors who worked with him rated him as having average to below-average pilot skills, and suggest that this means that he couldn't have accomplished this turn. This, of course, amounts to hand-waving. In the absence of other evidence, the clear conclusion is that the person on the flight who was A, a terrorist, and B, had trained to pilot a plane for this express purpose did 
in fact, execute this maneuver, because that's how logic works. There's absolutely no evidence of remote control or any of that other shit. It's also worth noting that Marcel Bernard, the very same flight instructor whose average to below average evaluation of Hanjour's flying ability conspiracists like to quote, went on to later state, There was no doubt in my mind that once Flight 77 got going, he could have pointed that plane at a building and hit it. Or as one of the pilots quoted on the aeronautical nerdistry website aerospaceweb.org puts it, People need to realize that crashing a plane into a building as massive as the Pentagon is remarkably easy and takes no skill at all. Landing one on a runway safely, even under the best conditions? Now that's the hard part. And so we move on to the hole in the building. David Ray Griffin, a former theology professor and these days full-time conspiracist, has been nicknamed the Dean of Truthers, as noted by David Aronovich in his excellent book, Voodoo Histories. And he's earned the dubious honor. The man seems to put out a new screed every week, with Wikipedia putting his 9-11 related tome count at a baker's dozen as of this recording. But for all of his calm demeanor and aura of gravitas, he consistently displays the flaws endemic to so much material produced by conspiracists, dismissing anything that disagrees with his position out of hand, while blithely accepting nonsense peddled by anyone whose overall worldview agrees with his. For example, in his initial 9-11 book, The New Pearl Harbor, Griffin is incredulous that, as he put it, a 125-foot airplane, counting its wingspan, went through what he termed a 20-foot hole. Aronovich has a blast with that one, noting, There were not many precedents for a large commercial airliner being flown deliberately and at speed into the side of a substantial building. Griffin's idea seems to have been informed to an extent by Tom and Jerry cartoons in which the cat, Tom, when propelled through a wall, leaves his entire profile, whiskers and all, outlined in the brick. On the other hand, the entire weight of scientific forensics, research, and analysis explains, quite convincingly, how a plane impact created the holes found in the Pentagon. Aronovich refers to the American Society of Civil Engineers report, which measured the hole in the Pentagon at 90 feet, which, of course, is still smaller than the full 125-foot horizontal wingspan of the airplane. So... What's the explanation? Well, firstly, the wings were already damaged from impacting a variety of objects on the ground, including a number of light poles and a portable generator, which eyewitnesses and the physical evidence confirm. This was fortunate, as Popular Mechanics reports, because those wings housed the majority of the jet fuel aboard, meaning the fireball that resulted on impact largely spread horizontally across the face of the building rather than penetrating it and potentially causing further damage and loss of life. This result, of course, is the opposite of what happened at the towers, jet fuel-wise, and combined with the fact that it was much easier for firefighters to reach the affected area on a much shorter building, helps to explain why only a part of the exterior facade collapsed within the first minutes after impact, and the potential for additional structural damage was largely avoided. As for the rest of the plane, which is really a pressurized skin made mostly of aluminum that's designed to be as thin and light as possible, well, according to Mete Sozin, professor of civil engineering at Purdue University, quoted by Popular Mechanics, The energy load rendered the exterior of the plane like a sausage skin that crumpled upon impact. What was left flowed into the structure in a state closer to a liquid than a solid mass. This was backed up by an eyewitness who said the plane seemed to simply melt into the building. What about that 20-foot hole? Well, it turns out that the hole in question was in ring C of the building, the third section in. And the plane didn't make that hole. The landing gear, which is far more solid and weighty than any other part except the engines, continued forward long past the point where the rest of the craft had expended its energy, punching what turned out to actually be a 16-foot hole 
before coming to rest inside that building. And as far as Willem not seeing any plane parts emerge from the hole in the building, aside from said landing gear and engines, both of which were found and removed, albeit potentially when CNN cameras weren't focused on the site, there wasn't much of any size to recover. Given the complete devastation of the plane's body, careful DNA testing was required to identify the dead. They found traces of 184 out of 189 of those killed in the attack. Pieces of the plane were, in fact, scattered around the exterior of the building as well. In fact, in March of 2017, the FBI released a trove of images taken at the Pentagon that day, a fair review of which should put any doubts about what caused that impact to rest. You'll find links to these shots in the show notes. And if you have any lingering doubts about what can happen to the body of a plane going more than 500 miles per hour into reinforced concrete, allow me to recommend another video, again linked in the show notes, which you can also find on YouTube by searching for Phantom Jet and Reinforced Concrete. The US government wanted to test what would happen if a plane crashed into the concrete walls of a nuclear power station. The jet sets off, bolted to a track to prevent takeoff. It's doing 500 miles an hour. The plane atomized with the impact. It just disappeared into dust. Only the tips of the wings... It's amazing how the plane in this test just seems to disappear. On to the next tragedy, Flight 93. Perhaps the aspect of the 9-11 attacks that is least concrete in the minds of the general public is Flight 93. I mean, everyone knows that the passengers, all too aware that their flight was the last component of a multi-pronged attack in which planes were being flown into landmark buildings, decided to risk an attempted takeover from the hijackers rather than accept their fate. Unfortunately, their brave attempt failed though experts agree that their actions likely saved the Capitol building from the kind of destruction that had been visited upon the Pentagon earlier that morning. But you don't have to be Willem UFO or an outright conspiracy theorist to wonder, upon seeing the images from the crash site, where did the plane go? Never in the history of this show have we been so acutely aware of the limitations of an audio-only medium. But hopefully many of you remember the scene. An open field, a smoking hole in the ground, emergency vehicles, helicopters and investigators swarming around it. But what you didn't see was anything recognizable as an airplane. You're not alone in wondering that, by the way. In an FBI video recapping the investigation, the investigators themselves seem as confused as anyone. I expected to see fuselage, uh, remnants of a plane, which I didn't see anything but pretty much smoke and some fires. I saw absolutely no signs that an airplane was present, no matter what direction I looked. You didn't know that a plane had crashed there. You had a crater, and the initial crater was probably 15 feet deep, but we didn't have big plane parts laying everywhere. It looked like the plane hit, but there's not a lot of evidence of the airplane, and I've described it a lot of times as basically a, a knife through hot butter. What I saw when it got up there was kind of... But of course, there is a simple explanation. We're all used to seeing the aftermath of disasters involving airplanes. Typically, it's a burning fuselage or something similar. That is because, as explained by senior National Transportation Safety Board investigator Greg Fife, most crashes occur during takeoff or landing when a plane is moving at relatively slow speed. Flight 93, on the other hand, was deliberately driven into the ground by hijackers at an estimated 580 miles an hour. It wasn't completely perpendicular to the Earth, but rather was traveling at a very steep angle. This meant, as Fyth explained to Popular Mechanics, that heavy elements like the engines were thrown out of the crash due to their mass, 
but the remainder of the plane was either driven into the 35-foot-deep hole the impact created in the ground, or shattered into pieces that, as memorably noted by any number of day-of reports, were mostly no bigger than a phone book. Mostly, but not entirely. A 6-by-7-foot piece of fuselage, along with the large engine pieces and other insect debris, were recovered along with the tiny fragments, and there are plenty of photos documenting this fact. Conspiracists like to contrast shots of Flight 93's crash site with more familiar images of jets in pieces or on fire in the wake of other accidents. But the experts popular mechanics consulted were consistent in saying that in crashes similar to Flight 93's, where a plane is deliberately forced into the ground at a near-perpendicular angle, the sort of complete disintegration seen at Shanksville is the most common result. Let's return briefly to that FBI video to hear what happened after the investigators got over their initial shock. And there were some real significant finds that they were getting very early on. I was shocked at the number of items that they were able to recover. We found great evidence of Flight 93. We found the passports of the hijackers. We found the notes that they had written for themselves. We found a, a knife that we believe was used by one of the hijackers. Once we did start processing, there was a big push to find the black boxes so that we could find out maybe what had happened on board the, the plane. I was there when uh, we discovered the black box. There was a lot of pressure from all of all of the sites, not just New York and the Pentagon, to locate the data recorder and the black box. It was a big deal when we did find it, and I believe it was, was slightly over 25 uh, feet into the crater. So through diligent, painstaking effort, with investigators literally crawling on their hands and knees for days and weeks, the final recovery totals are impressive. More than 1,500 pieces of human remains were found. All passengers were positively identified, and more than 95% of the plane itself was recovered from the crash site and surroundings. This represents an honestly astonishing level of focus and dedication. As to Willem's suspicion that both Flight 93 and the Pentagon were hit by missiles, suffice it to say, the evidence doesn't support that assertion. We've dealt with the material recovered from the Pentagon that demonstrates that, as suggested by the original report, Flight 77 indeed made the gash in the side of the building. Popular mechanics researchers also explore the shoot-down theories about Flight 93. Their basic conclusions, again leaning on the best evidence available, are 1. No shoot-down order was in place for Flight 93 due to garbled communications between the various agencies. 2. NORAD was still unaware that the plane had been hijacked by the time it hit the ground, and the FAA only notified the Secret Service of the hijacking at 10.02, one minute before the crash. And 3. The Secret Service then notified VP Dick Cheney, who discussed the matter with President Bush and relayed the latter's approval to shoot down any other hijacked planes by 10.20, the first time the order appeared in writing, 17 minutes after the fatal crash. There were other reports of a mysterious white plane that some witnesses believed had shot down Flight 93, but that craft was identified later as a business jet that was landing nearby when the FAA requested it do a flyover of Flight 93's crash site, thus inadvertently causing the confusion. So, in essence, while the government would have approved shooting down Flight 93, it simply didn't have the information needed to issue that order until after the plane had crashed. 
Willem had one other assertion that we haven't yet dealt with. His memory of the day of news report, with the tail section of a plane in chains in a lake, and a local correspondent who was about to report when he was cut off by a CNN anchor, this footage never to be shown again. Because we take Willem seriously, we watch CNN's coverage of 9-11, eight plus hours of it, the uninterrupted original feed as preserved on YouTube. It was both weird and unsettling to relive that day over such an extended time period. Once I crossed the Manhattan Bridge and returned to my apartment, I tuned into this very same channel and its coverage nearly 17 years ago. Looking back on it from this distance in time was like a hideous type of nostalgia. Regardless, we can now definitively provide the following walkthrough of this coverage. At 10.37 Eastern is the first time that CNN mentions reports of a plane crashing we, in we Pennsylvania. We are getting reports, and we are getting lots of reports, and we want to be careful uh, to tell you when we have confirmed them and not. But we have a report that a 747 uh, is down in Pennsylvania, and that remains unconfirmed at this point, and so we will check on that. Uh, I want to get back to the former commissioner. At 10.49, they provide a bit more information. There's another mention 32 minutes later. Five minutes after that is the first time that they state the flight number. Finally, almost four hours into the coverage is the first time that CNN cuts to images from the crash site itself. Before actions are taken. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you, Senator McCain. These are the first pictures we have in. Uh, this is from Somerset County, Pennsylvania. This is where the United Airlines flight... I believe it is 176 went down. I'm sorry, I'm I correcting. United Airlines 93. This was a Boeing 757 bound from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco. It crashed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, near the town of Shanksville, south of Pittsburgh. We are told about 80 miles outside of Pittsburgh in right. western Pennsylvania. It is not known how many passengers or crew were on board, although initial reports indicated uh, no survivors. Again, these are the first pictures we have coming in from WTAJ there in the Pittsburgh area. United Airlines telling us earlier they had lost. The rest of the coverage is heavily weighted toward New York and Washington, D.C., with occasional returns to the Shanksville site. But what I can definitively say is that the local anchor in front of a lake with a tail section scene described by Willem does not appear in the CNN coverage from that day. Now, to be clear, I do not doubt that Willem believes that he saw what he said he saw. But I also think it's entirely possible that his memory and the memory of those with whom he spoke is simply exhibiting the sort of fallibility that all of us as humans are subject to. See your previous episode for more details on the problem of eyewitness memory. So, you might be asking, what did he think of all of this research? Did it change his mind? I wondered that too, and thankfully, during a recent visit, he was willing to sit down with me and go over the information I had uncovered. Okay, so I'm back here with Willem UFO. Uh, six months ago, we had a conversation about some of your questions about 9-11 and some stuff that you saw on the day, and I actually spent some time going through... Um, all of the evidence that I could find and actually uh, tried to review some of this stuff and address it. But in addition to your stuff, I did all the other things that were like big regular claims sure. that seemed sane. Like, okay, this is a thing. Like, we should probably investigate this, see whether it's true. I, I, I take issue with, you know, reports from explosions in the substructure. Mm -hmm. 
smoke and debris coming out of the bottom of the tower before it started to collapse. Oh, there's the reason for that is at least partially because there was a lot of stuff falling straight down the elevator shafts mm -hmm. and also that the air takes the fastest route through the building as it's being compressed from the top, which means that the air pressure is incredibly huge pushing down and it blows stuff out the bottom before it would the top. And when they do computer models, it actually shows that. I think most of my points didn't have to do with the science behind it. It had to do with the what appeared to be an attempt to cover up what was happening. The New York 9-11 stuff I find far less conspiratorially aggravating yeah. than the Washington Pentagon uh, stuff. I know, and so most of what I have has to do with that and Flight 93. Right. So, starting with the, the DC flight, you had mentioned that you didn't see any uh, plane stuff removed from the site. Well, okay. Sorry, not I, necessarily. I don't want to get that's this okay. Wrong. Watching the news, right, and them showing the hole mm -hmm. in the building. There was no plane. Yeah, we're we're going to get to that in just a second. Okay. Um, okay. So there is. I, I just wanted to <clears throat> to show you that the FBI actually, and this is only a few years ago, mm -hmm. started releasing debris images on this website that were all taken from the Pentagon wreckage on the day of, but they didn't release them to the public immediately because they were part of the No, no, I'm not talking about research. That, that's fine. Okay. Okay, whatever. This is the hole that, from that. What I'm saying is... <laughs> you didn't see a plane. There wasn't a plane. Right. Okay. Okay. In all the plane crashes you had ever seen, you see like the fuselage and the tail and those pieces. As a rule, those planes are not deliberately crashed. There are almost no examples of a plane just crashing from the sky, but the ones that they have, according to the researchers, look exactly like Flight 93. The one that I think was literally shot down. Yes, I know. Yeah. The Pentagon is reinforced concrete as opposed to the towers, which are glass with the some plane steel structures. When they hit this concrete structure, cool. instead they folded backward, yeah, is an example of an actual jet impacting an actual concrete wall. The jet basically just disappears. And the reason is because the whole thing is a thin skin of aluminum that just gets crushed into the concrete and leaves essentially nothing. So that's why the plane does not appear to be there. But the plane that they report that crashed into it is literally a full story taller than the structure that it crashes into. And the hole in the Pentagon only goes up to like the third floor because they say floors four and five the collapsed. Floor, the fifth one collapsed. So the actual size of the hole, um, according to the, the, the actual the, the emergency response and all that, was 90 feet. Right. So you the see plane's basically actual the tail just gets sheared off. But yeah. this is where the damage hit, right. and this is the minor damage above it. Mm -hmm. So you can see that even that, with the height of the thing, it's still below the fifth floor. During now the, the fifth CNN floor broadcast, did collapse. I guess the measurements they were giving were not these, oh, because no, they insisted that it was definitely from the belly to the top yeah. of the tail section was a full floor higher than the Pentagon. No, I, t I totally Whereas understand. now, this yeah. looks like it was not. The more accurate numbers are the ones that are done calmly later on sure. by forensic investigators. Sure. But that's, you know, that's that's how these stories happen. Yeah, and like, two for example, holes. I investigated. And things. one of the widely reported things was that the <laughs> hole was 20 feet across. So the 90 foot hole goes through the first two rings. But by then, all, almost all the energy is dissipated. 
The only things that continued are the engines, which got stopped sooner, and the landing gear, which is incredibly solid, which just went straight through and punched a hole through the next three rings because it's the heaviest thing that they So got. that's the stuff I found out about the Pentagon, basically. Now, as far as Flight 93, this is the actual people who were involved in the FBI investigation on the ground and their first reactions when they got there. You didn't know that a plane had crashed there. You had a crater. Perspective and things like that. I watched eight hours worth of coverage of CNN live feed that somebody had recorded from the day of. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you also said you never saw the, the, the tail section in the lake. No, all I did was I watched the entire thing. The entire thing was from like 8.30 a.m. until well past 1 a.m. They no, were no. still so, doing live. So understand. Yeah. I'm sorry. What I watched was until they cut to the actual footage that I was familiar with of Flight 93. No, no. This was after that. That's the fucking problem. And I will go look for yeah, that. This was like, they went, this is the wreck site. And then like within an, uh, 30 or 45 minutes, they, had a they cut to a different affiliate. Yes. Okay. It's not that they. Sh it's not that I think they shot it down, necessarily. Okay. It's if they did, why not just tell us? I thought that was a totally legitimate point, and I researched it. They did indeed give a shoot down order, fifteen minutes after the plane hit, and the reason is because they have timestamps on all the communication. And NORAD was unaware the plane had been hijacked by the time it hit Officially the ground. Officially ordered a shoot down of that plane seventeen yeah. minutes after. Could you tell me how you feel about the Pentagon stuff that we talked about, like? Does it do anything for how you felt before, or do you feel any differently? Uh, I, no. Okay. I, I, it's, I mean, and I, so I'd heard the landing gear thing before, and uh, I'd actually seen the re, the, the recreation model. Yeah, I, I've seen that as well. Um, I guess it's just one of those that, like, there was, like, as it was happening that day, and you're seeing it, mm -hmm. things aren't adding up. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then when it's over, it suddenly seems very convenient convenient in a lot of ways um and i'll you know so would you register that you just basically still have questions like, like you're, you're just you're still don't feel it's settled maybe i don't want to put words in your mouth no, i apologize no. this point that sticks with me mm -hmm. is not what happened but what the administration that was in charge at the time was able to do after it happened because it had happened i think this seemed like I'm not going to say convenient because so many people no, tragically died, but why weren't there more attacks? Why didn't the attacks continue? Why, 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 why? Like there's all this stack up of why. Sure. And then in the, in the, the wake of all of this, there's all the power that was seized. Yeah. The rights that were outright removed. Sure. That's, that's the problem. It seems strange to me that an enemy inflicted this upon us as a nation and then our nation inflicted this additional, you know, harm on ourselves. It. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I just think that that was one of those, I, I you know, I, I have an employer, uh, a former employer who was, um, he was a, he was in military gaming. Mm -hmm. Like he, they game scenarios. Yeah. Um, now he never said anything like this sort of scenario. Yeah. Uh, he was involved in the literal planning of the Panama invasion. And they planned an exact scenario that. Oh yeah. So okay. when he was watching the news, was like, "This is what we were doing." Yeah, like cool. he had no idea. According to what I've what read, doing. they basically already the Pentagon has plans for everything you can imagine. Yes. So if they have all of these plans for what we're going to do, mm -hmm. I would be 
stunned if they did not also have plans for what they would be able to do after these things happen. And in looking at ways of dealing with things, you figure out things you can get away with because people are afraid. I see what you're saying. And I, that, that's it. I think, I think that they were trying to keep everybody as scared as they wanted them to be. Really, the biggest phenomenon of 9-11 trutherism was between 2004 and 2006 because the Bush administration was perceived by so many as doing so many horrific things and obviously having a botched and, and fallacious rationale for invading Iraq that was largely based on 9-11 in a very dishonest way and all of these other things that were happening, that essentially the fact that Bush got reelected in spite of all this released a wave of anger that like really essentially it's like, well, if they did this, what else are they doing? But then the 2006 election where the Democrats took back the Congress to some extent actually sort of diffused that. And I would suggest to your point, why weren't there more attacks? The main reason is they got everybody that was a capable agent for all of these things and put them all on those planes and they got lucky. So essentially the terrorist operative depth level is very low now, which is why all the ISIS damage is being done in either these lone wolf attacks or in the places where they controlled. You know, there isn't anybody like Al-Qaeda anymore, including Al-Qaeda. I really appreciate you sharing that sort of perspective because it actually ties in very well with what I think is the reasonable lingering. When it comes down to it then, Willem's doubts about 9-11 aren't so much grounded in a deep study and rejection of the researchers' conclusions. Rather, it's an expression of the totally understandable feeling that those he disagreed with politically had managed to enact such sweeping changes to U.S. foreign policy, and had done so based on such flawed reasoning that it naturally made him question the event that ended up handing them so much inadvertent political capital to spend in furthering their own ends in the first place. Incidentally, you'll note that after that interview, there was still one loose thread I needed to pull on. Apparently, I had stopped too quickly in my review of CNN's day of broadcast. So, after another seven hours of follow-up viewing, I found... Bupkiss. Well, maybe not exactly nothing. But to see whether or not I could confirm my suspicions about what Willem saw, I got in contact with him again. Essentially, I told him... The truth, that while I had found one other section that involved a guy who kind of fit the description of the gent Willem said he had seen, there were no air marshals, no tail section, no chains to be found anywhere. After he had reviewed the clips that I sent him, he confirmed I had not solved this final mystery for him. Unfortunately, as much as it pains me, I am going to have to leave this loose thread untied. With that, we have basically wrapped up our review of the mainstream doubts about 9-11. As mentioned before, we have tons more to cover within the enormous umbrella of 9-11 truth or conspiracy theories, but the remainder are super duper crazy, so we're going to cover them in exhaustive depth next time. When he says crazy, he really means it, people. Before we take our leave, though, we would hate to miss the opportunity to explore the most important opinions on what truly happened on 9-11, those belonging to celebrities. And so... And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Inevitably, in every era, some significant percentage of the most famous also include many who harbor weird beliefs. 
Take, for example, celebrated ancient Greek mathematician, geometer, and arguable cult leader Pythagoras, who, in addition to figuring out how you could calculate the long side of a triangle, also apparently forbade his followers from eating beans. On the unimpeachable grounds that the gas inevitably expelled after consumption was not excess methane, but rather windy pieces of the farter's soul. He would only speak to his lower-level disciples from behind a sheet, so they couldn't see his face, and he wrote a special prayer addressed to the number 10. The more history you study, the more you realize that many of our most revered historical figures, like Isaac Newton, spent more time on absurd ideas than they did on the stuff that made them justifiably famous. In Newton's case, lavishing attention on alchemy and other pseudoscience, while completely revolutionizing physics and math in what amounted to his spare time. So it's hardly a surprise to find that modern stars use their various platforms to promote all kinds of asshattery, from Gwyneth Paltrow's peddling of steam cleaners and crystal therapy to rebalance ladies' swimsuit regions, to Randy Quaid's insistence that he and his wife are in constant danger of summary execution by a group of celebrity-murdering ne'er-do-wells he's christened the Star Whackers. To pick just one of our recent topics, Kylie Jenner, Roseanne Barr, and the dearly departed Prince have all expressed their belief in the non-existent chemtrail conspiracy. When I was a kid, I used to see these trails in the sky all the time, and so oh, that's cool. A jet just went over, and then you started to see a whole bunch of them. And the next thing you know, everybody in your neighborhood was fighting and arguing, and you didn't know why. Okay, and. And you really didn't know why. I mean, everybody was fine. But for a while there, in the mid-2000s, all of the top-quality celebrity crazy was focused on one topic, 9-11 trutherism. Actor Charlie Sheen's startling claims that the government may be covering up what really happened on September 11th. The more you look at stuff, especially uh, specific incidents, specific events um, in or uh, around the fateful day, it just... Um, it just raises a lot of questions. Now, to be fair, and in spite of the title of this segment, many of these folks haven't expressed any feeling crazier than what we heard from Willem earlier, which is to say, not fully informed, but not totally outside the bounds of reason. And when you dig more deeply into the public expressions by prominent celebrity truthers like Ed Asner, John Hurd, Woody Harrelson, and Willie Nelson. Yeah, that one's tough. Anyway, when you probe more deeply, you find that these folks are either complaining that they don't think 9-11 was researched fully enough by the then-in-power Bush administration, or that, like Willem, they have grave reservations about the way that government leveraged the event to enact its existing geopolitical wish list. Others have more specific complaints, though no more evidence. Oscar winner Marion Cotillard, for example, had her own brush with trutherism, though shortly thereafter, whether due to change of heart or for fear of its impact on her livelihood, she quickly volt to fast. I'm pretty sure that pronunciation was horrible. The 32-year-old French star has issued a statement through her lawyer, claiming that she never intended to contest nor question the attacks on September 11, and regrets the way old remarks have been taken out of context. In the interview from February 2007, Marianne had suggested that the U.S. government was behind the attacks. She also questioned the 1969 moon landings. Both Rosie O'Donnell, who apparently never met a conspiracy theory she didn't like, and Mark Ruffalo, an actor whose work we at The Strain have enjoyed. Especially Zodiac, a film about how the obsession with uncovering the truth about an unanswerable mystery warps the lives and ideas of the obsessed individuals who will grasp at any straw, however flimsy, that promises to give them the answers they crave. Fearful loves it. Yeah, I know. Shocker, right? Anyway. 
both Ruffalo and O'Donnell seem to fancy themselves structural engineering experts. Do you believe in a conspiracy in terms of the attack of 9-11? No, but I do believe that it is the first time in history that fire has ever melted steel. I do believe that it defies physics for the World Trade Center Tower 7, Building mm -hmm. 7, which collapsed in on itself. It is impossible for a building to fall the way it fell without explosives being involved. World Trade Center 7. Now look, I know we're in a bit of a glass house here, since this show requires me to speak authoritatively on a different subject each time. And confidentially, I'm not actually an expert on, for example, medicine, the law, federal taxes, Jewish history, or any of the other subjects we've presumed to touch upon. But to ensure that I'm not talking out of my ass, at least most of the time, I do my research, consult with and interview experts in the field, and, you know, believe in evidence that's been vetted and approved by said experts. I imagine O'Donnell and Ruffalo have rather more complicated schedules than ours, but it might be worth a moment of their precious time to consider whether reading up on evidence that disagrees with them before running their mouths might be a good idea. Daytime hosts, actors, and musicians aside, though, there's at least one legendary American public intellectual whose sad final years are marked not only by a slow descent into a general conspiracy-minded crankdom, but also a particularly ugly, cynical, evidence-free truther stance that served as a curdled, foamy topper to his cliched, anti-American belief cappuccino. Uh, fearful? Yes. Maybe ratchet down the labored metaphors just a crank or two. Yes, ma'am. But for those who admired the man's earlier writing, the slow decline of Gore Vidal was truly a disheartening thing to behold. Vidal had been a mainstay of American intellectual life for more than half a century by his death in 2012. Perhaps his most famous moment was the legendary on-air mosh pit that his 1968 debates with arch-conservative William F. Buckley descended into, where Vidal drove his usually cool-headed opponent into a waspy frenzy. People to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As, I know you don't as care. As far as you I'm concerned, the only Pro or crypto Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the assembly. Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop or calling I'll names. Stop you and in let's your get... goddamn face, and let's... you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's. In addition to public provocations, the man was a celebrated novelist and nonfiction writer, pro stylist, and, well, a supremely catty bitch. Another public smarty-pants whose gift for a cutting remark never left him, Christopher Hitchens recalled some of Vidal's finest turns of phrase in a 2010 article. Of a certain mushy spiritual writer named Idris Shah, these books are a great deal harder to read than they were to write. Of a paragraph by Herman Wouk, this is not at all bad, except as prose. He once said to me of the late Teddy Kennedy, who was then in his low period of red-faced, engorged, and abandoned boyhood, that he exhibited all the charms of 300 pounds of condemned veal. Vidal's dark side was considerable. He always seemed to have some vaguely uncomfortable thing to say about the Jews and Israel, for example. But his final decades, which his nephew analogized to those of Norma Desmond, the legendary faded starlet whose twilight is chronicled in the classic film Sunset Boulevard, found him fully surrendering to his mental hobgoblins. Especially after the 9-11 attacks, he seemed to reach a new nadir each time he was interviewed. Again, to quote Hitchens, his output included, A small anthology of half-argued and half-written shock pieces that either insinuated or asserted that the administration had known in advance of the attacks on New York and Washington. He openly says that the Bush administration was probably in on the 9-11 attacks, a criminal complicity that would certainly fit them to a T, that Timothy McVeigh was a noble boy, no more murderous than Generals Patton and Eisenhower, and that Roosevelt saw to it that we got that war by inciting the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor. You don't have to take Hitch's word for it, though. Here's Vidal, in his own words, recommending David Ray Griffin's pastiche of horse shit, 
the new Pearl Harbor. Was about to happen. I'll plug a book, not my own, which I've been reading in the car mm -hmm. coming down here. It's called The New Pearl Harbor. Fingers are pointed. A lot of it is questions that never got answered. For instance, one of the questions which I, I asked. One would like to think that, in spite of his lifelong flirtation with conspiracy theories, the young, sharp-minded Vidal would have seen through Griffin's evidence-free accusations and not embraced them simply because they supported his own ideological preferences. To be clear, there's plenty of legitimate reason to criticize the American government for what it has absolutely, definitely, for sure done. See our previous episode for a fairly exhaustive chronicle. Which makes it even more inexplicable why someone like Vidal, with all of his gifts, would indulge in conspiracy mongering to help him make his point. In an appreciation written at his death, the economist regretted that with him had also passed, quote, a brand of public discourse. It seems there is no longer a place for the erudite and witty public intellectual in America, end quote. Perhaps that was true, and if so, we're poorer for it. But at least, since his death, we haven't had to indulge Vidal's personal paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Special thanks to our interviewee, the one and only Willem UFO, for being a good sport, and of course, for making the pretty pictures. Thanks also go to LG Sweet, Scotty Favor, and Johnny Quest for sharing some very painful memories. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super duper website. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we're going full on Looney Tunes, unearthing truther theories so insane they culminate in literally the craziest book we've ever read. Until then, remember the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 